This episode of Inside the Vatican is brought to you by Hesburgh. Hesburgh is an award-winning documentary film about Father Theodore Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame and America's most well-known Catholic priest. Critics are calling Hesburgh a powerful and extraordinary film about one of America's all-time greatest educators. Hesburgh is out nationwide starting April 26th. For more information, visit hesburghfilm.com. That's H-E-S-B-U-R-G-H film.com. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. First up, we're going to talk briefly about the horrific fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Then we'll update you on Pope Francis kissing the feet of South Sudanese leaders. We'll also talk about the new letter from Pope Emeritus Benedict, and a few more details from Jerry's new book on the conclave that elected Pope Francis. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning, Jerry. It's good to be with you in our new studio. Good morning, and I'm not at a distance. And we're not nearly as rested as the last time we recorded together in Rome. Sure. This week, Catholics around the world were transfixed by the fire that raged at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Did the Pope issue any statement on this? Yes, he commented yesterday at the public audience, expressing his closeness to the French people, the French Catholics, obviously, and a special word for the firefighters. Very often these people, uh, their work goes unrecognized, and yet they're the heroes of the moment. Right. There were real concerns about the structural integrity of the cathedral, and because of the way that they intervened, they were able to save a lot of it. I was also struck by the reaction of people, how they came out and prayed. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's there's something about these, these big events which touches the hearts and perhaps the deeper faith on people that's not visible in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to see this outpouring of uh, faith, of grief, of coming togetherness as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you see there's a real kind of unifying factor that emerges out of the great uh, disaster. Yeah, yeah. It was very moving to see. We have news coverage, videos, and also prayerful reflections on this fire as it relates to Holy Week, which are really worth checking out if you're still processing these images like many people are. I'll link to a few of those in the show notes. Another image that was really striking in the last week was when Pope Francis knelt down to kiss the feet of the South Sudanese leaders that were gathered at the Vatican for the retreat that Jerry and I told you about on last week's show. It seemed to me like this will probably go down as a really iconic image of Francis's pontificate, much like when he, you know, kissed the head of the man with the skin condition, right? I don't know. Do you, do you think that it's going to be like that, too? I think it really goes to the heart of how Francis is living his ministry, because he realizes that there are certain moments when words are not enough. Hmm. Everybody knew the Pope was going to speak at the end, mm-hmm. and it, this was going to be televised. And yes, he spoke, but the message was in the action. Right. And Francis has always said from the beginning of his pontificate, you do the gospel, mm-hmm. you act, and if necessary, you use words. Right. And I think it shocked them. 
it shocked the leaders of South Sudan. And he not only kissed the leaders, the president, the opposition leader, but also the, the, the widow of the famous uh, liberation movement. Right. The um, vice president uh, said to some news agency that she was she was crying as she watched this happen, right? She'd never seen anything like it. Um, this came just after there was a military coup in Sudan, which Sudan was obviously instrumental in a lot of what's going on in South Sudan. Um, do you think that that lent a sense of urgency that might have prompted this? Well, I, I think they're separate questions. Yes, they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Sudan situation has long been known. I remember being at a meeting where the, the, this president the former president, the deposed president of South of Sudan was, and he, he was no angel. But I think the message that Francis gave was he was telling the the political leaders on and the opposition leaders in South Sudan, you have a responsibility. Peace is in your hands. Work for the common good, not for your own interests. The message was so clear. Everybody in the villages would have understood this. And they will not forget it. If he'd given a speech, they might remember one line, two lines. They would have taken what they wanted out of it. But by the gesture, it was so powerful that it will be etched in their minds and hearts. It's an indelible memory. And uh, it's a kind of an ever-present call to the conscience of these people. Well, what are you doing with your power? Now, Pope Francis has been famous for kissing the feet of Muslim women and prisoners during his Holy Thursday Masses every year. But this was the first time he's done something like this with a government leader. And it was a real effort for him. He needed some help to kneel down and to get up and then kneel down again in front of the next person and so on. I asked Jerry if he's seen any gesture comparable to this one in the rest of Francis's papacy. I, I remember when we went to, for example, when we went to Bethlehem. You remember he got, he was passing the wall and he got, got off the, the, the jeep, the Pope mobile, and went and put his hand on the wall. He didn't say anything, but he pulled his hand on the wall and the message was, the walls must come down. And that went through the Arab world. It's also through the Israeli world. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu was not very happy. But uh, the message was so strong, there were no words. But it was clear. And so that, that's another political gesture, or I would put it on a similar level. Obviously, the wall between Jerusalem and Bethlehem is still standing. And that might cause some people to believe that the Pope's gesture didn't succeed. But I'd say that in that case, as in this one, the success of the gesture rests in whether or not it sent the message it was intended to send. In the same way, it's impossible to say whether we'll see peace in South Sudan in the near future. But the Pope's gesture certainly moved the country's leaders in that moment. And like Jerry said, it sent a clear message to everyone across the country that the Pope is begging for peace. The video of this gesture is really something. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can watch it. Our next story concerns a recent letter that came out from Pope Emeritus Benedict blaming the church's sexual abuse crisis on the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Some critics have pointed out that this fails to account for so many of the abuse cases happening in the 50s. 
But the part that raises the most questions about this letter isn't anything that the letter contains. It's under what circumstances the letter was written and distributed. I saw this letter as I was boarding the plane. And I was really taken taken aback. And I remember well when Benedict, I was there listening, when he said, you know, he was going up the mountain, he was going to pray, and he was withdrawing from public utterances. Right, you write about this in your book. Yeah, it is very curious. I mean, Benedict resigned, he himself says, because he didn't have the mental and physical uh, strength to continue as Pope. And that raises our first question. Why would Pope Emeritus Benedict break his silence? And why break it by writing a lengthy article? It, it is strange that when he states so publicly that he's withdrawing from public life and then enters on the eve of his 92nd birthday mm-hmm. on one of the most sensitive topics in today's uh, church, mm-hmm. the question of the abuse and how it's handled, and then does so in a way that, I don't know if the word victim, but maybe it was used once in the text, mm. which is strange. Strange uh, in that it appears so little. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to go in and talk about the content, but I am saying the, the context in which this thing came out raises many questions. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I would not think we have seen the end of questions about the context, quite apart from the content. Yeah. Uh, What is really, I I think, one needs to know, what is the genesis? Was this Benedict's own idea? Mm -hmm. Was it suggested to him? Was it strongly suggested to him? Was was he appealed to, to come out in this way? Mm-hmm. And only Benedict could answer this, or those near him. I, 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 th- that is my the, the thing I would be looking at, and I will be interested when I go back to Rome now to hear what is being said. The second question has to do with how the letter was distributed. Like I mentioned, it was meant for a small German newspaper, but an English translation was released to several American organizations that have taken a rather critical approach to Pope Francis before anyone else. And the release was timed to the American news cycle rather than the European one. Who tipped off this area of the media, which is not so friendly to Francis? Mm -hmm. These raise disturbing questions. I think one should be very clear. Ever since Francis has become Pope, there have been some who disagree with the line Francis has taken who have tried to use Benedict. And mm-hmm. Benedict has been an upright man and he's not played those games. Right. And this document also is now being used in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think those who tried to split Benedict from Francis are on the path to failure. Yes, they have different ways of looking at questions. They have different analysis on situations. But Benedict has time and time again and uh, made clear publicly he supports Francis, he admires Francis, and uh, he has 
in the public and spontaneous statements, he's come out very strongly behind Francis. And in the last part of this letter, I don't think you will see great difference from Francis. And they say, both, both see this as a, the abuse as a, an evil that is seeking to undermine totally the church, its mission, and to distort the nature of the church. Jerry raises a good point here about Benedict and Francis supporting one another, which means that it's other people who are trying to make it seem as if there's an opposition. So what's really going on here? I remember, and I put in my book, when, when it, uh, Benedict decided that he would live inside in the Vatican, in the, many people were not very happy. Many people have always resisted the idea of the Pope resigning because that he could be used against his successor. Now, Benedict is a totally upright man. But is he being well served by those around him? These, these are questions that are now being asked in Rome. Jerry reminded me that Pope Benedict resigned in part because he saw what had happened as John Paul II grew older. He had watched what had happened under John Paul II. When in the last years of his pontificate, many people in Rome, senior cardinals, were saying, who's running the church? And many people understood that one of the key people was his secretary, perhaps the secretary of state. But uh, how much John Paul II was running in charge was really a big question. At that time, Cardinal Ratzinger then was asked, should, this was 2002, should John Paul II resign? And he said, no, not him. But I foresee that given the age, the longevity of people today, the advance of medicine, I foresee another pope should resign. Many people in Rome at the time said, there was another factor which he wasn't saying, was that he had seen the last years of John Paul II. In a way, the pope was being in the hands of those around him. And now it's Pope Benedict who's growing older. Yesterday, Benedict was 92 years old in his 92nd birthday. He would, if he had been Pope, he would be the second oldest Pope in the history of the Church after Leo XIII. Wow. Pope Francis visited him. We don't know what was said in that conversation. The one who's most likely to know most of this, or perhaps all of it, is uh, Archbishop Ganschwein. And that's his secretary. The Pope's uh, Benedict's secretary, whom he made archbishop and head of the papal household shortly before his resignation. Mm-hmm. And he has kept both those roles. So there are a lot of important questions to ask about the circumstances in which this letter was written and distributed. And as Jerry returns to Rome this week, you can be sure he'll be asking those questions. And we'll keep you up to date on what he finds out here on Inside the Vatican. We mentioned that Jerry is in New York this week to celebrate the launch of his new book, The Election of Pope Francis, an inside look at the conclave that changed history, which is out now from Orbis Books. We've already spent a lot of time on the show talking about Jerry's methodology and the information he had about the first round of voting, and you can find that kind of detailed reporting on the other rounds of voting and the meetings that happened around the conclave in this book, so I won't spoil it. But I wanted to take this chance, while Jerry's in New York, to have him share one of my favorite anecdotes from the book. I think it really gives a sense of the kind of color and inside look that the book provides. Well, Benedict 
uh, had left Rome by helicopter, and he'd flown to Castle Gandolfo. Then he'd greeted the crowds from the balcony of Castle Gandolfo, and that was the last we saw him publicly. That that was to be his last words to the to the people. He he had decided eight o'clock was the moment when the his era as pope ended. And the symbol of that was outside the big wooden doors in Castle Gandolfo, you had two Swiss guards. Here's the Pope is inside, and the Swiss guards guard the Pope. At eight o'clock, the doors were to close, and the Swiss guards were to leave, because there was no longer a Pope. Five minutes to eight, Cardinal Bergoglio came to our house for dinner. And we were watching the television, so he stood watching with us. And just in silence, we were all just watching in silence at this historic moment. And as I say in the book, neither he nor we knew that this was the man who would be the next successor of Peter. That's really an amazing story. You can find Jerry's book, The Election of Pope Francis, an inside account of the conclave that changed history, in bookstores or online. I'll put a link in the show notes. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us in studio this week. It's been great to have you here in New York to promote your book. Thank you, and I'm most grateful to America and to Orvis for the launch of the book here in America on its 110th anniversary. Oh yeah, we had a great great party on Friday. Um, today, Wednesday, April 17th, is, is America's 110th anniversary, and tomorrow is Holy Thursday. Um, so I think I speak on behalf of both of us when I say I wish our listeners a uh, blessed Holy Week and a happy Easter. We'll be on break for the next uh, week or so, uh, so we'll be back after Easter with a new episode. Inside the Vatican is produced by America Media at the William J. Lowshirt Studio in New York City. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Kieran Freeman. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Oliver Lazarus. Our studio manager is Leopold Stubner. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll be on Easter break next week, so we will see you the first week of May.